Can we bow our heads for prayer, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for the conversations about health that we've had today. May we make practical applications from these talks. Amen. All right, so um, my name is Don Bovell. I'm an emergency medicine physician practicing here in the state of Florida, and I'm board certified by the American Board of Emergency Medicine. I've been practicing for 20 years. I graduated from Andrews University with a BS in biochemistry, graduated from uh, the University of Michigan Medical School, and did my residency in Detroit Receiving Hospital um, from 1989 to 1992, which that was a level one trauma center. And uh, um, currently, I work in a large community hospital in Ocala, Florida. We see about 106,000 patients through all our departments. We have a main emergency department. We have a freestanding ER, which is the first of its kind in the state of Florida and the busiest in the state of Florida. And we have a pediatric emergency department. So um, that's my background. That's my training. Now. My experience with the current healthcare system, as extensive as it is, is, I, I would say it's disappointing in the sense that we really don't address the underlying cause of our patient's condition when we see them in the emergency room. Now, don't get me wrong. If you have a fire in your house, you want a fireman, okay? So if I have a heart attack at 6 a.m., I want Dr. Cohen to come take care of me. That's the fireman aspect of it. But our emphasis in healthcare, healthcare, quote, unquote, is the fireman approach rather than what I would probably term the Smokey the Bear approach. Can we prevent these forest fires? And that's where we should have the push, even in the emergency room. And as an emergency room physician and as acute care clinicians, whether you work in the intensive care unit whether you are a family practice physician, whether you're a nurse practitioner, practitioner, physician assistant, I mean, the current research shows, past research shows, and I'm gonna show you very graphically that back in the 1900s, what really addressed the problem with uh, mortality from infectious diseases was not acute care medicine. What addressed the major problem was preventive measures. Now, this is really a U-turn for me because my life is busy, fast-paced in the emergency department, but really had to think about these things. So healthcare is really a misnomer because what we actually do in the hospital is disaster management or disease management, okay? It's, uh, you know, the house is burning down. We have to put it out. Um, all of us have had numerous patients who've had multiple bypasses. You know, they're on their third bypass. Um, they've had multiple stents. I've taken care of a patient who had 13 stents, still smoking. And I've talked to some of these people, many of them, no one has ever talked to them about preventive health measures. So what do we get for our healthcare dollar? In 2010, 30% went to hospitals. Now what do we do in hospitals? We, uh, pharmaceuticals and procedures, right? That's what you do in a hospital. 20% went to physicians. More and more, I'm seeing patients who tell me I spend more time with them in a busy ER than their, than their physician spends with them. They're busy, you know, with these chartings that we have to do. I hate those things. 10% prescription drugs. Again, we're talking pharmaceuticals. So we're talking about 
Majority of our healthcare dollar goes to pharmaceuticals and um, prescriptions. What goes to like public health or prevention? Minimal amount. What's the cost of youth healthcare? In, nine, in 2009, we spent $2.5 trillion on healthcare. $765 billion was due to waste. That's 30% of the total. And uh, that waste was due to inefficiently delivered services, prices that are too high, and missed prevention opportunities. Now, what result do we get for this extremely expensive system? We are a society plagued with the chronic diseases of the West, as some people call them. Um, in 2010, the top cause of, of uh, death was heart disease. Cancer was number two. I put heart disease and cerebrovascular disease together since the etiology is very similar. And then you've got non-infectious airway diseases like COPD emphysema. But let's look at something really interesting. Look at the diseases that were the causes of death in 1900. You've got, anybody ever seen this before? Pneumonia influenza was the top, top cause. Tuberculosis was number two. In fact, for many years, tuberculosis was actually um, higher than pneumonia or influenza. And then you have gastrointestinal infections like, you know, um, cholera and those types of things. And then heart disease is number four. Now, decline in mortality from infectious diseases from 1900 to 1996. Um, you'll notice that the, uh, death, the death rate um, for infectious diseases was 800 per 100,000 in 1900. Now this included pneumonia, influenza. You can see the result of the influenza pandemic. Uh, this was uh, in 1918. You had a major spike. But notice very carefully that this graph steadily declines. And here we have the first use of penicillin. Here we have the first use of vaccinations. And this is when vaccinations were used on a very um, you know, public um, way. So if you'll notice, before the first use of penicillin, infectious diseases were dropping. Now, yeah, it begs the question, did penicillin actually improve the, uh, um, the decrease of, of, of that death rate, or was it going to come down anyway? Okay. Now, don't get me wrong. I've, 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 I'm living in, in the uh, era of vaccinations. I actually took care of a patient with epiglottitis, um, a, a little kid, when I was uh, um, a resident at Detroit Receiving Hospital. And I don't see epiglottitis anymore. It's amazing. I mean, that uh, um, HIV uh, vaccine has, I mean, virtually, I see a kid with a fever in the ER. I don't know what to do. I'm like, he looks fine. Take him home. Okay. Well, not really, depends on the age, so. <laughs> so, yeah, so we see this amazing decline. And so what did we do? What did we do back then? All right, achievements in public health, 1900 to 1999, control of infectious diseases. Um, what was going on at that time was people were realizing there's a connection between um, contaminated water and health, okay? It was, um, they noted uh, at that time we had TB sanitariums. Anybody ever heard of that? There were these big buildings where people would rest. They would get um, fresh air and sunlight. 
And if you'll notice, TB declined from 194 per 100,000 persons, that's 194 deaths, to 46 before antibiotics. And this was due to improved housing and TB control programs. So I actually got this from a uh, CDC a website. It's in a patient handout. And this is what they're telling patients today. And this is how we were tr probably treating patients mainly back in 1900. TB germs can sometimes stay alive in the air for a few hours, especially in small places with no fresh air. Fresh air and sunlight make it harder for TB germs to stay alive. The fresh air scatters the germs and the sunlight kills them. So we solved that problem back then. We can solve it again. We just need to go back to public health measures. If we go back to this uh, graph, and if you forget anything else, I want you to just look at this graph and study it because this was very profound for me. If you, if you look at this, you have 40 states have health departments. Now, health departments came about back then because people were, wanted to get a pure water supply. Um, there was interest in solid and liquid waste disposal. And so because the community was interested in having a pure water supply, people started to um, you know, be active in that area. And now you've got 40 states have, having health departments. You have people interested in um, uh, pure water. So you have the first continuous municipal use of chlorine and water in the United States. Um, and so these uh, simple interventions um, that were preventive had a power powerful effect. All right, so look at this. 620 soldiers died in the Civil War. It's estimated that two-thirds of them died from disease rather than from their wounds. What difference would, have, would that have made if we knew about uh, antiseptic procedures back then? You can see that there were a bunch of yellow uh, fever epidemics. Um, there was transmission of cholera. Um, and after the adoption of sewage systems in Great Britain and the US, you see amazing drops in these infectious diseases. So a pure water supply was not just a convenience, but a necessity for good health. Now, this is Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis. Anyone recognize him? 1818 to 1865. He was a assistant in midwifery. Um, I guess that's an OBGYN back in those days. Um, in Vienna in the 1840s. And he took upon himself the task of finding out what was killing the women in Europe and America from this disease called purpural fever or childbed fever. What would happen? Um, mothers would deliver their babies and very soon afterwards they would die of this they would get high fevers, they would get sick, they would get confused, and essentially they were all dying from sepsis. Uh, the rates at his hospital were extremely high. Um, and there was a difference depending on where you had your delivery done. There was the first division where the doctors and medical students delivered um, uh, women, and there was a second division where nurses delivered, delivered women. And he noted that on average, there was a rate that was three times higher in the first division where doctors and medical students um, delivered women. Um, you can read about that in The Doctor's Plague. Sherwin, uh, Sherwin Newwood, who's actually a surgeon, wrote an extremely interesting book about it. So he actually, after uh, observing and doing autopsies and, and really looking into it, discovered that um, or came up with the theory that physicians were actually carrying the disease from tainted hands. There was no germ theory back then, so he called this, these things cadaveric particles. What would happen is, you would do an autopsy on a woman who died of purple fever in the morning, 
all right? No gloves back then. And then you would go do a, a bimanual vaginal exam on a woman who's about to deliver that afternoon, directly transmitting the germs to that woman. And so rates of disease and death would get as high as 30%. Can you imagine going into the hospital to deliver your baby and you've got a three out of 10 chance of not coming out alive? And often your baby would also die from that disease because coming down the birth canal that could be transmitted. So he instituted something extremely simple, hand washing with chloride of lime in May of 1847. So the, um, the death rate, which on the physician side, I think was about 9.8, went down to 1.2%. And the uh, death rate on the nurse's side, which was around 3%, went down to 1.3%. So both markedly dropped from something very simple. Again, a simple intervention that emphasized prevention. We have Dr. Joseph Lister, who was a surgeon in England. Um, he actually came up with the uh, um, certain methods of uh, um, sanit certain sanitary measures during surgery. Um, he coined the term antisepsis, and his mortality rates dropped by two thirds. Now, you re anybody recognize this guy? This is Moses. They said nothing new. 3,000 years before these guys were alive, you've got the laws of purification handling a corpse. And you have the ritual after childbirth. Now think about this. If we had these laws, this was an epidemic that would have been totally, would, would not have happened. The law of purification states that if you're exposed to a corpse, you're isolated for seven days, and then you wash yourself, um, you wash your clothes, and then you can come back into the community. The ritual after childbirth for a spe specific amount of time, um, you are isolated from the community. If we had these laws, um, or if Europe and America were following these simple laws, these simple preventive measures, um, it would have been a totally different story. This is Dr. Theodore Cooper, MD, PhD, brilliant man. He was a cardiac surgeon published more than 200 scientific articles. He was a director at the NIH. He was uh, President Ford's Assistant Secretary of Health. He was chairman and CEO of Upjohn, which was either the or one of the largest pharmaceutical companies back then. It's no longer in existence. It's merged and merged and merged, so it's something different now. Um, so I would say this is a guy who's an expert at procedures and pharmaceuticals. Wouldn't you say so? Let's see what uh, he said. Um, addressing some physicians, he said, is one of the great and sobering truths of our profession that modern healthcare probably has less impact on the health of the population than economic status, education, housing, nutrition, and sanitation. Yet knowing that, I think we have fostered the idea that abundant, readily available, high-quality healthcare, uh, substitute disease management or disaster management there, would be some kind of panacea for the ills of society and the individual. That is a fiction, a hoax. So here are the leading causes of death in 2000. Heart disease, malignant neoplasms, uh, that cancer, that's cancer. Um, cere cerebrovascular disease, that's stroke. Chronic lower respiratory tract disease, COPD, emphysema, unintentional inju injuries, diabetes, all right? Uh, now, now you just start seeing like the uh, infectious diseases here. So these are leading causes of disease, but some researchers actually wanted to look at what they call the actual causes of disease, the underlying behaviors that result in these top causes of disease. So if you smoke tobacco, that's a risk factor for 
heart disease, risk factor for emphysema lung cancer, okay? Um, they estimated, and all these uh, estimations are conservative. These are brilliant guys, and I'm, I'm not an academic either, Dr. Cohen, so you know, I, have to, uh, I, have, I have a friend who's a sociologist, and he tells me this is a good paper, so I agree with him. So anyway, so tobacco, 435,000 people in 2000 died from uh, tobacco, smoking tobacco. Um, 400,000 um, died from poor diet and physical inactivity. 85,000 from alcohol use. So it's, yep, that's, I, that's, you know what, it was probably switched back in 2000, but yeah, it's, uh, that's, and that's what they said in that paper that this was gonna be the number one. So, someone comes in with a heart attack, someone comes in with diabetes, someone comes in with um, a chronic uh, lower, uh, lower respiratory condition, um, should we do a bypass on someone having a heart attack? Yes, but should we address the tobacco, the poor diet and physical inactivity and the alcohol that underlies the condition? Yes. Should we do it like episodically? No. Should we do it consistently? Yes. Should it be something that the nurses talk about? Yes. Should it be something that the physicians talk about? Yes. Their family doctors? Yes. The emergency medicine physician? Yes. Our churches? Yes. Our health and temperance leaders? Yes. Everyone should be talking about it. Okay, um, moving, uh, let's see, how much time do I have? Okay. So this is a prospective cohort study. Um, 70, uh, over 70,000 U.S. women aged 35 to 59, um, in, for, starting in 1980, they followed them for 24 years. And these are five risk factors. Um, low uh, quality of diet, um, excessive alcohol intake, um, uh, poor... Uh, 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 inactivity, um, and there's, uh, there are two others. Uh, did I say smoking? Okay, smoking, and there's, there's something else. It'll, it'll probably come to me. Anyway, these are five risk factors, um, lifestyle risk factors. And as you increase your lifestyle inf uh, risk factors, your deaths per 100,000 person years um, goes up markedly. You go from 200 if you have zero risk factors to 1,000 if you have all five. So this is a major study that showed a direct correlation between um, physical activity, diet, and, um, and uh, um, decreased mortality. That's me running the uh, Disney Marathon. Physical activity effects, we all know this. Maintain weight, reduce blood pressure, reduce risk for type 2 diabetes, heart attack, stroke, several forms of cancer, reduce arthritis, pain, and associated disability, reduce risk for osteoporosis and falls. So when someone comes in and they say, my knees hurt, you want to encourage them to actually do some walking. Reduce or do something where they're moving around a little bit. Do some exercise. It reduces symptoms of depression and anxiety. Obesity effects. Um, as you get overweight to obese, you increase your risk of coronary heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, cancers, liver and gallbladder disease, sleep apnea and respiratory problems, osteoarthritis, gynecological problems, abnormal menses and infertility. All right, so this shows a small study that shows the phenomenal impact of diet. This study uh, was a study of 20 lean diabetic patients who received daily insulin injections. They were placed on a high-carbohydrate, high-fiber diet for 16 days after they were on a control diet for, 17, uh, for seven days. So the control diet consisted of 20% protein, 43% carbohydrate, 37% fat, that's really high fat, and 26 grams of fiber. Now, unfortunately, that's probably high fiber in our day. I, I don't know, what is, what is the average American 
uh, intake of fiber, the average person? Eight to 12. So I guess this would be high fiber. But look at what um, in our day, but a, a true high carbohydrate, um, high fiber diet, 21% protein, 70% carbohydrate, 9% fat, 65 grams of fiber. Um, the daily dose of insulin was lower for all patients on the high carbohydrate, high fat diet, I mean high fiber, sorry, high fiber diet. The average insulin dose was reduced from 26 to 11 units a day. Insulin therapy was completely discontinued for 55% of the patients. Cholesterol dropped by 59 points from 206 to 147. So this shows the imp and uh, they did not even examine the uh, influence of exercise on this. This was just purely diet. This is from 1979. This is not any new data. This is data that's been there. The, the Diabetes Prevention Program, New England Journal of Medicine. Um, this is old too, 2002. If I'm reading it, you know it's old. I'm an emergency medicine physician. So this was a randomized clinical trial to prevent type 2 diabetes in persons at high risk. Um, they had their eligible participants randomized, and everyone got standard lifestyle recommendations. Everyone, all of these people. But then they were placed into an intensive lifestyle program, or metformin, which is a, a medication that treats type 2 diabetes, or placebo. Now, the interesting thing to me was this lifestyle intervention structure was pretty intense. There were 16 session core curri curriculum over 24 weeks. It was a long-term maintenance program. It was supervised by a case manager. There was access to lifestyle support staff. There was a dietitian. There was a behavior counselor. There was an exercise specialist. And you'll notice from this graph that the cumulative incidence of diabetes was much lower in those who were in the lifestyle arm than those who were in the metformin arm or placebo arm. So their summary of the diabetes prevention program, now I gotta say something about the diet. Their diet was, they, their goal was less than 25% fat. Their goal was uh, just above 150 minutes of exercise um, a week. And uh, they had to maintain a seven, about a 7% weight loss, okay? So their conclusions, metformin reduced the development of diabetes by 31%. So, in, but intensive lifestyle intervention reduced the development of diabetes by 58%. Lifestyle was more effective than metformin. My summary was on a subpar diet with a less than optimal exercise plan, but with a consistent message and great, re, great support, they got good results. And, you know, I've, I've been a health and temperance leader at the church, and I think this is why sometimes our health and temperance outreach in the church doesn't work because they're haphazard and episodic. Um, you know, we'll have like a health day one day a year and maybe a health program a weekend. And uh, um, sometimes we kind of beat up on the people about what they're eating, et cetera. And uh, you know, I, a lot of people, I don't want to, they don't want to, I don't want to go to that and I'm interested in health. So, <laughs> so this shows that if you have, you know, we have all these wonderful churches that we only like go to like maybe once a week, most of us, we should be going twice a week, maybe more. I mean, these can be areas where we can give this consistent message and great support that people need to make a change. And if they're hearing it in the emergency room, if they're hearing it from other physicians, if they're hearing it at the church, you know what? People are finally gonna start believing that maybe it's true. So uh, this, this is kind of diet we, we advocate. Um, nine servings a day by the National Cancer Institute. What's a serving? People often ask that question. So. 
Um, that's uh, a large orange, a medium-sized banana, two cups of salad, a medium-sized apple, etc. And new four food group. This is a, by Dr. Neil Barnard, Reversing Diabetes. Um, he talks about whole grains, legumes, vegetables, fruits, and I'd put in there some, some whole, um, whole uh, what do you call it, um, nuts. Um, what am I trying to say, nuts? Um, you know, walnuts, almonds, but not, not roasted. There you go. Raw nuts, that's what I wanted to say. Had a little TIA there. So this is a friend of mine who's a 49-year-old man, six foot two, starts. Um, he called me up and he says, hey, Don. Call me Bovell, actually. That's what my friends call me. Bovell, I went to my doctor. I've got diabetes. He told me there's nothing I can do about it. I said, don't believe him. I said, get this book. He's an engineer. I said, get this book by uh, um, Neil Barnard and read it. So he starts exercising, reads Reversing Diabetes, over the next year loses 35 pounds, his hemoglobin A1C decreases from 10.2 to 6.3, and he notes an astonishing increase in his energy and libido, pretty much within a few weeks of starting his whole foods plant-based diet. He exclaimed to me happily, this is our health message. Everybody knows this guy, um, Caldwell B. Esselstyn. Um, he's a... Um, physician, he's a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, he's also a gold medalist who, um, what was it, rowing, gold medalist in rowing in 1956. Um, a re in a re review article that he wrote, he says, the optimal diet consists of grains, legumes, vegetables, and fruit with less than 10 to 15% of its calories coming from fat. This diet minimizes the likelihood of stroke, obesity, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and cancers of the breast, prostate, colon, rectum, uterus, and ovary. There are no known adverse effects of such a diet when mineral and vitamin contents are adequate. Nothing new. Laws concerning diet. You've got the Eden diet. Um, you've got Genesis 129, 2, 16, uh, and 17. That is a whole food, plant-based diet. You've got the end of the world diet. Well, of course, you can't eat plants. There are no plants around. So then you've got some uh, rules about what kind of um, flesh food you should eat. You have the Exodus diet. And uh, don't let anyone fool you. This is mainly a whole food plant-based diet. Read Exodus 16 and read Numbers 11. And then you have the exile diet, Daniel 1, 8 through 16. Again, a whole food plant-based diet. Nothing new. So you're a physician and you have an office. How many people uh, are nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians who work out of their office? All right. Anybody, anybody use this intensive behavioral therapy for obesity yet? Because, I, you know, I don't use it in the ER, so... Yeah, um, you can go to this website and they'll tell you uh, um, all the things you can do for preventive care. But um, Medicare will pay you $25.52 for a 15-minute visit to counsel someone who's obese versus $72.81 for equivalent time, equivalent time spent with an established visit. Okay, how many physicians do you think are going to um, counsel patients, do intensive behavioral therapy for obesity? when they can make almost three times as much with an established patient doing something else. Um, but I say, you know, with our perspective, we need to do it anyway, okay? It's um, because there are rewards, as you know, other than monetary rewards. This is a gentleman who was involved in our B-Smart program, and I'm gonna have my colleagues come up in two minutes and talk about that. And he lost 43 pounds, his blood pressure went from 154 over 88 to 117 over 71. His total cholesterol decreased from 205 to 173. And he had a venous stasis ulcer that completely resolved. And this was over a period of four months. 
and some other people who are engaged, who are involved in our Be Smart program, which is a church-based uh, nutrition and exercise program that um, my colleagues will talk to you about um, after I'm done here. Um, we've got a 36-year-old, five-foot-six Hispanic woman who was 290 pounds August 2013. She's currently 247 pounds as of probably yesterday, because that's when we had class. She lost 43 pounds. Borderline hypertension is now normal. Now, what's interesting to me is what people say qualitatively about how they feel. She reports that she could not see her feet and that her legs were very painful. Those issues have resolved. We have a 57-year-old, uh, 5'7", African-American woman who went to a medical spa from May through July 2013, over 10 weeks. She spent a total of $1,277 for exercise and nutrition counseling, injections, and pills. She lost nine pounds. The receptionist said, hey, that was great. She started our B-Smart program August 2013, that's, uh, what's that, two months ago, weighing 241 pounds and is now 218 pounds, 23 pounds weight loss. Free. She rejoices that her arthritic knee pain has improved to the point where she can now clean her own bathroom rather than hiring someone to do so. So um, how do you make a therapeutic alliance with a patient? Well, basically. The question that I often ask my colleagues is, if someone wants to be involved with us is, do they like people? I mean, if you don't like people, you shouldn't be around people. It's that simple. So, so that's the first thing, do you like people? The next thing is if you like people, you need to have a conversation about change. This is an approach to counseling called motivational interviewing um, that was developed by two clinical psychologists and it's to promote self-confrontation. There's several um, um, uh, principles that they use, and I encourage you to read the book because I'm running out of time. But listen to your patient. Look at your patient, you know? Mirror their emotions, except anger. Hear the words and decode the meaning. Reflect what the patient says in a guiding fashion. Try not to dictate. In fact, don't try. Do not dictate. Uh, in the process of engaging the client, the patient should, should feel respected. They should, the patient should feel that she's listened to and understood. The patient should feel that you're someone that she can trust. The patient should be given options rather than a one-size-fit-all approach. And it should be a negotiation rather than you dictating what's going to happen. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. So what do I do in the ER when someone comes in who is wheezing and their saturations are down to about 90, 92%? We have this uh, process in our, our hospital now where everyone has to talk, to talk to the patient about quitting smoking. I think it's a good thing. But I see the nurses asking them, about their tobacco use when they're huffing and puffing. Who wants that? So what I do is I wait until they've stabilized or better and I go in because you either have to discharge them or admit them to the hospital and you have to tell them what the plan is. And then I say, hey, what about your smoking? That's all I have to say. Nine times out of 10, they'll say, yeah, I know I need to quit. And then you can engage in a conversation and uh, try to move them along that path toward change. All right, here's our Be Smart program. I'm going to ask um, my colleagues to come up. Um, this is a program that we do through the church, and um, I have three colleagues here with me. Um, Grace Daly, um, she is a former WNBA basketball player. Um, she's our exercise and strength coach. We have Ann Burnett, who is a, a certified exercise instructor, um, and she's also my wife, so she's my boss. 
And we also have Pastor Matthew Christo, who is a, a, a pastor in the Florida Conference. He's, we actually do a lot of the programs and work with him in, um, in his church. So every, every one of these people are gonna come up and sort of talk about their experience with what we're doing. Okay, so I'm going to go over the Be Smart principles, and it's a very simple program. You guys have heard of New Start, I'm sure, and you've heard of Creation Health. Well, this is our spin on the age-old or timeless, back from Genesis, health principles that God gave us. So our B stands for Believe in God, and we've also put this program into the public school system where that really wouldn't flow. So we changed the B to Brush Your Teeth and Bathe. And I'm currently a kindergarten teacher, and that is more relevant than you can imagine. And the E is for eating fruits and vegetables and drinking water. We're encouraging seven servings a day. And S is for sunshine and air. And what we've done is we've attached a mission to every one of these principles. So it's not just believe in God. Your mission is, number one, start your day with prayer. Number two, have a quality morning devotion. Number three, end your day with prayer. For eating fruits and vegetables, your mission is to get seven servings of fruits and vegetables and go for a rainbow and to drink water. And we're saying half your body weight in ounces. And while you're drinking water, no soda, for reasons that you all know, and to choose the fruit instead of the juice. We always say, eat the fruit, the whole fruit, and nothing but the fruit, so I'll help you God. Sunshine and air, we're advocating 15 minutes a day if you're lighter skinned, more if you're darker skinned. And this is like a daily checklist that we give our adults that attend our Be Smart classes, exercise classes, and that I give my kindergartners every day. And M is for moderation, and we use the Christian definition, which is self-control in good things, and when something is bad, avoid it completely. So your mission for moderation is to exercise self-control in good things and to avoid what we all know is junk food. And we categorize that as fast foods and sugary snacks and treats. A is for action. For children, it's an hour a day. For adults, at least 30 minutes a day of vigorous exercise. And we often cite the commandment that says, thou shalt exercise. Have you heard it? Yeah, it's in the Bible. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou rest. Right? <laughs> Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor. Okay? And that labor is the Hebrew word abad, which means heavy, like vigorous work, physical exercise, like tilling a field or building a wall. So Jesus said, thou shalt exercise six days a week and rest one day. And then the R is for rest. And the rest is being in bed by 10 o'clock p.m. for adults and for children kindergarten through fifth grade by 8 o'clock p.m. And the T is for tell others, and that is sharing Jesus at some point during your day. That's your mission. It should be very simple if you're living the Christian life. And for children and our adults, we also attach television time to limit your TV time to one hour or less of quality television. And what we've learned in this Be Smart program is when you give people missions, daily missions to accomplish, and you hold them accountable by meeting together often, consistently, we see amazing results, and his wife will tell you about those soon. But being a kindergarten teacher, I know one thing works really well, show and tell. Everyone loves it, and it makes dramatic changes, or it gives them the potential to make dramatic changes. So one thing we do when we talk about moderation is we let people see what we're saying, right? The average American consumes seven, in seven to nine days, consumes this much sugar. This is a five-pound bag of sugar. Okay, a five pound bag of sugar in seven to nine days, everyone sees that and they say, wow, how's that possible? Well, here goes show and tell. And I'm just gonna pick out a few things. Each of these packets of sugar represents a teaspoon, okay? So in a simple bag of Skittles, you're talking about one, two, three, four, very big number, right? And 
what we say is taste the rainbow of fruits and vegetables, right? Instead of the rainbow of Skittles. And there's simple, there's simple changes that we can make. Something like um, this juice, it says fruit punch. So we encourage people to actually eat fruits, right? If you want that kind of um, the real nutrition you're going to get. And soda, it's a world of hurt. But this is just one of the problems besides decaying your bones and your teeth. And we also show this. You guys recognize this box? It's a Krispy Kreme box, and it's been living in my garage for over two years, and everything's perfectly intact, okay? I should have opened this, and you all should have fell over backwards, right? But you can come see it afterwards and smell it, but don't try to eat it, although it looks as good as new. There's no mold, no self-respecting bacteria. Nothing's going after this, okay? Which should give us, uh, as humans, it should give us a hint of what we should do, too. Here's a cheeseburger from McDonald's. It's over five years old. And the only reason it has these, you know, parts of the bread that's broken off. You smell it? Really? She says rancid. I'm okay with it. But <laughs> no, actually, um, there's still no mold here. It goes in the back of our pickup truck and travels all around America. And it got loose one day, but it's still together, okay? And we have um, school lunch donuts. So we encourage kids to bring their own lunch. This would be a really good weapon for Goliath or for David if we wanted to reenact that story. But there's, there's just simple things that we can do. You can come up and look at this table afterwards. And they're putting this, uh, this kind of refined sugar everywhere. Frosted flakes are frosted with sugar. Snickers doesn't really satisfy you. Send your blood sugar spiking up and crashing down. And it triggers your appetite. And you get hungrier and you eat more. So what we're doing is encouraging people to make smart choices and practicing the Christian definition of moderation, which is self-controlling good things. I love bananas, but if I eat 20 bananas a day, that's trouble, right? And things like this that really don't have a lot of nutritional value, we want to avoid them completely. But that's the Be Smart program, and Princess Sam will tell you more about that too. All right, hello, I'm Ann. Can you hear me okay? Yes, good class. I'm following in Grace's footsteps. She's a kindergarten teacher. All righty. So, in regards to the Be Smart program, you're probably wondering, how do we implement this, right? What is it all, um, how, do we all inc uh, how do we incorporate it in our daily, daily lives or in our ministry? Well, we have five exercise classes every week in three different Adventist churches in two different conferences. Pretty impressive, huh? Where do we find the time? If it's important to you, you will carve out time for, the peop for uh, these classes. Now, um, it is attended by approximately 80% non-Adventist. Pretty impressive. Praise Jesus is what we say. Now, our observation, and this is our second, third year doing these classes, is that we see bodies changing, blood pressures being lowered, you know, hypertension, you get the idea? remarkable changes being made in their health and their bodies, their moods, also their spiritual lives. Additionally, they're forming relationships. We'll get to that later. Alrighty, the next thing is every Wednesday for our young people in the community, we have dodgeball and other physical activities. And that is done at Pastor Christo's Church, who um, I'll bring up in a moment. And what they do is we play dodgeball in different games and then we have halftime, and that's where we do a particular activity, and then from that activity, the young people, they huddle together in groups, and they find the spiritual applications. They pull out the spiritual lessons from the activity that we did, then they come up and they present it. They preach and deliver the sermons. Again, that is 80% non-Adventist young people. 
pretty amazing. They also practice praying. So if you can imagine young men coming in with the pants hanging low, by the time they enter the doors, they're back up, right? <laughs> so um, yeah, and what do we observe? Their characters are changing. Pastor Christo is right there in the midst of it. He also teaches them table tennis. Like I said, we have you know, games for them. And he facilitates this. So he is also uh, building, uh, bridging the gap and forming that relationship. So now they're thinking pastors are pretty cool. Isn't that cool? All right, here we go. Now, the next thing that we do, oh, by the way, in all our programs, the Be Smart programs, uh, principles are being reinforced. We introduce it, reinforce it, and in some way, we are um, making, have, helping them make the connections so that they start to think about making smart choices. By the way, they're, while they're playing, you know they're really exercising. They don't even realize that. All right, the next thing I want to share with you is that, there's a particular Adventist school in the town where we lived, Ocala, Florida. They've never had PE. So what did we do two years ago? We're like, hey, school principal, how would you like to have physical education for your students, for the entire school? You would? Well, I'll be your teacher. It won't even cost you a dime. Just let us introduce the Be Smart program. He said, Yes, of course, free. That's what we can afford. So <laughs> the first year, we had fun doing PE, of course, and we have Be Smart charts, which you have in your possession. You should see the pictures of us on that handout. Yeah, okay. They have to fill out charts, and on the left-hand side, you see all the principles. They have to check them off, make sure that they accomplish. Every day they do this, and then the one that they always get is the A is for action because I am there taking them outside and making sure that they play. And this is kindergarten through um, eighth grade. They get their sunshine. It's a Christian school, so they have their devotion. You get the idea. We're reinforcing the health principles in the Adventist school. We're also building relationships. Observation. The teachers and the students, they, were, they formed a connection they are helping each other, holding each other accountable, not, through the smart, not only through the smart charts, but daily saying, hey, that's not, if they brought in something like this, ooh, that's not smart. The teachers started having smart parties, like at Valentine's, they no longer brought in this kind of junk. They were now bringing in fruits and telling their parents and kids to do that. Praise Jesus. Let's move on. <laughs> the second year of, at that school, which is this year, Oh, actually, the first year I should mention that we gave the kids um, gifts. If you spill out your smart charts, you can go to the back of my vehicle and pick out a toy for the whole school. This was so cool. This year, didn't even have to do that. They were still filling out, filling out their charts, even though it wasn't incentivized. Can you imagine why? Because now it's a learned behavior, and it's now part of their uh, uh, scholastic lifestyle. Are we together? Yes, we are. Okay, now the other cool thing is that in the county where we live, Marion County, Florida, there are 35 elementary schools, public schools. And Grace was her uh, entryway into that because she works in that school system. So we wanted to introduce the Be Smart programs to them. Of course, B is not believing God it is. Brush and bathe, exactly. And through the extended day program, we were able to get into all the elementary schools, and praise Jesus, we're able to make changes. So, how did we do that, you wonder? Through something called boogie breaks, boogie breaks, boogie, do you hear the echo? 
Boogie Breaks are four minute long videos that we offer on YouTube and also DVDs. So we give them out to the schools, to the teachers, whoever wanted it. And um, uh, those who, uh, the teachers actually use it in their classrooms. The kids are zoning out because, you know, one plus one equals two, who cares, or it's too much for them. Teacher goes, oh, wait a minute, let me pop in a Boogie Break. They get up, they do one of the activities, four minutes long, and then they're able to refocus. So come to find out, because we can track those who are hitting our websites from all, all across America. Teachers are using this tool. We also get feedback. It's helping them to refocus. And they're still getting action. And they're learning the health principles, because all the videos have a pop-up of these um, different health principles. But we do it in a fun and cool way. You should check it out. OK. Then the other thing I want to mention to you really quickly, every summer now, we offer Be Smart camps. So we have to wait for Grace to be out of school, because she's a school teacher. He's still with me. And so whatever church invites us, we go to their church. We put on a week-long Be Smart camp for, the, for their young people. It's not just an in-reach, but an outreach, because the young people, they don't have anything to do. They're looking for something to do, but we also want to give them Christ. We, also, we want to give them the health message. But we do it in a fun way. Health snack, the, the snacks are healthy. Uh, that's one of the requirements. They have to be Be Smart compliant. Kids who have never heard of the health message are now introduced to it, and they now learn that this kind of food is junk. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They take the information home to their parents, and the word goes on and on. Oh, okay. <laughs> All righty. And, of course, churches um, invite us to host, you know, put on this program for them and share with them and get them excited about mission work without going overseas, but in their community. But it also starts in your church. And that's what we do. We actually travel to churches and encourage them to start exercise programs, but we do that for them. We jumpstart it, and everything we do, praise Jesus, is free. All right, the one thing I wanted to mention to you is how we transition, because we know that um, those who attend our exercise classes, they, they, um, they change, their bodies change, they, they form relationships. How do we transition from that to you know, doing more Christ-centered, well, I shouldn't say Christ-centered, uh, transitioning them to like a church program, a church service. So thanks to Pastor Christo, and I'm going invite to invite him up in, in a minute. Come stand beside me while I share this with them. And he's not just a pastor, he's also um, a Be Smart class participant. So he will share his own personal story, I hope you don't mind, about how nutrition can improve your health. Um, but yeah, so... We had the idea, okay, mm, how about if he said, let's do a Sabbath afternoon program for those who come out to our exercise classes. And to give you an idea, we're talking, and if everyone were to come to class at once, it would be over 250 people. But on average, it's about 80, 70 to 80 people. That's a lot, because it's free, praise Jesus. So Sabbath afternoon, once per month at about 6 p.m., we have um, family um, family fellowship and, and, no, family praise, food and fellowship. And we pr sing praise songs, we do an activity, the spiritual lesson is, um, is extricated, the pastor um, ties it all together, and so they're being introduced to Christ. Now, can I just mention, we have Hindus, Muslims, Hispanics, Asians, um, Caucasians, African Americans, West Indians, all together in one room. Amen. So we use Christ's methodology of reaching them through health and then introducing them to the gospel. 
Uh, any questions for any of the participants? Yes, sir. The question was, um, uh, how do you get your people to come? I guess, how do you advertise? Right. Well, initially, we, we um, prepared flyers and just flooded the neighborhood with them, door hangers, and hung them on the door. We also met with people in the streets, you know, in shopping centers close to the, uh, Pastor Christo's church because they would know where the church is and personally invited them. And the connections that we made, we were either funny or we tried to connect with them if they were an older person, you know, just find some common ground that we could connect with them. Anyway, once, once those individuals came and they had so much fun, they, I, we didn't have to do anything else. We went out and handed out flyers just once. And it grew to what it is right now. So if, if the product is good and Christ-centered, people will absolutely come. So they do the work for us. And every single class, this is our second year, every class we have on average three new people. On average, absolutely. Every Tuesday and every Wednesday. The same is true for Wednesday, um, Wednesday uh, night dodgeball. We never advertise that. The young people, they go and tell their friends. And it's a lot of high schoolers. So for high schoolers to invite their high school friends, you know it has to be cool. Actually, if I can also say one thing, in addition to the exercise classes, we also provide nutritional information and education and every class and behavioral modification um, uh, instruction or counseling, every class. We pray at every class. We ask uh, for prayer requests or take praise reports publicly so they share, you know, what God has done for them publicly. So they encourage each other in the Lord. And even the Hindus... Do the same thing, say, can you pray for my son? He's in jail, right? And some of the songs, of course, um, uh, you know, has, all the songs have God and Jesus, but some parts of the song will, will say, um, you know, uh, if you love Jesus, say, say, say my, you know, say my name. Say, say what? I love Jesus. Say, I love Jesus. That's right. Some of the songs say, I say, I love Jesus. And you will see, hear everyone, even the Muslims, I love Jesus. <laughs> Pretty amazing. The power of Christ. And people love things that are free. No, people love things that are free. I mean, you have a quality service you're providing, and we give our best. If we're working for God, we always give our best. So we're providing a quality service that's in demand. The fitness industry makes billions of dollars, and here we are providing this for free. I mean, no strings attached. Just come as you are and leave change. That's it. Oh, yeah, we go to Sunday churches, too. Just if they call, we answer. And the message is the same for everyone, and we want to make it available to everyone. Let's close with some prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful day and all of the uh, seminars that we had and what we've learned. We pray again that you will give us the power through your Holy Spirit to put these uh, gifts that you've given us, um, to utilize them and put them into practice, we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.